welcome to Here for the Health Fit Podcast. My name is Dr. Randy Kloss, and I am here with Dr. Thomas Stetson, and we are exposing Columbia, South Carolina to the local movers and shakers. We talk about business, health, and anything about our local community. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Ashley Young. She is a therapist and dives into the mental health world for us. She recently opened her own practice. So she has some insights into the entrepreneurial world as well. But we ask her everything that we want to know about mental health. She talks about the effect of mental health and um, from social media, and then talks a little bit too about um, children's and different aspects or components that people can implement in their life to improve their mental health. So I hope you will listen and enjoy Ashley Young. Here, here, here. Hit the acapella. Here. We're here for the health of it. For the health of it. All right, welcome to Here for the Health of It podcast. We are excited to have Ashley Young with us here today. She is a entrepreneur and a licensed therapist. And she is going to give us some of her tips and some of her um, experiences opening her own um, business and working with people of all different ages, especially in the mental health world right now, which we're hearing a lot about. So welcome. Thank Thank you for being on here. Thank you for having me. So maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to Columbia, why you're in Columbia, and then um, what moved you into starting your own business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my route to uh, therapy as a licensed professional counselor, I think is non-traditional. Um, I, although I got my bachelor's degree and master's degree, you know, kind of consecutively, I was a part of the military full time and I still am 20 years, um, celebrated recently in February. Wow, nice. Um, Do so, you get a plaque for it, for it or do you get a, well, what, what got, happens at 20 years? So you basically just, you're eligible to retire at any time, really? you know, um, not quite ready to do that just yet. Um, still competing with my husband in rank. So we'll see. Um, <laughs> and she says 20 years and you look 25. Yeah, that's 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 like you started at age five. Oh man. Thank you. Well, I did join, um, as a junior in high school. Um, I went to basic training that summer and wow. I wanted to start college on time. And so they had a split out program. Wow. And so I was able to do the school the following summer. Nice. Um, I'm from Newberry, South Carolina, so I've been in Columbia for most of my adult career post-grad school. Um, but for the first parts of my career, I managed um, Survivor Outreach Program for the military, which is um, a program that provides support, supportive counseling and case management for uh, families who lost their soldiers overseas. And so I did that for six years. And then I launched my um, well, practice. Can we go back to that part? Because yeah. that's interesting. Sure. Yeah. What? did that look like for you? Because I'm, it's just family after family and probably the hardest time of their entire life. Yeah. And I'm sure there had to be a protocol where you were with them for a certain period of time or were you with them for years? Um, and so for some of them, I was with them for years. Um, you, you get them after the casualty assistance officer kind of comes in and helps them with the legalities and the logistics of the burial. Mm-hmm. And then they're kind of like handed over. Um, but before 2009, there was nothing for them. And mm-hmm. so that program really? was developed in 2009. And so I was one of the first um, hires for that program. Wow. And so it just resonated with me because at that time I was newly commissioned officer. Um, and uh, I felt like it gave me a lot of purpose. I learned a lot. Um, but then I really truly understood grief, you know, sometimes 
people have an expectation that it has a time frame, you know, and it doesn't. It looks yeah. different in every season. Wow. And so um, I was able to learn a lot um, during that time. Um, and after that, um, I did launch my practice part-time with Palmetto Counseling Associates, but then I went on to uh, be the program director or program manager for the sexual assault response coordinator um, for the National Guard. So I basically um, managed all sexual assault cases, provided support, and trained all the victim advocates for the state. I did that for three years, um, wow. up until 2018 is when um, I transitioned to my practice full-time. And is that something... Like, do you have any statistics on how often that occurs in the military and some of the cases that you were dealing with? Is that something common that people wouldn't know about or think about? Yeah, I think the military has evolved in the way that they've handled the cases. I mean, with sexual assault cases now, there's an external investigation to kind of eradicate the issues that may have existed before. Mm -hmm. um, so there's someone that comes in from D.C. that does that and, and, and give us the findings and then that's pursued. Oh, well, the National Guard is quite interesting, though, because um, if you're in the National Guard and you may have offended someone in civilian capacity, um, then um, the civilian authorities have the first right. And sometimes mm -hmm. that lengthens the case and the military gets kind of a bad rap for that, but their hands are really tied with the right. National Guard and then, and then that's pursued. But I think just statistics generally, one in six women, you know, it's wow. just not military. And what we're learning more and more is that there are more men. Um, that just haven't come forward. They're feeling um, culturally more safe. Um, and again, each culture has their own progression mm -hmm. um, with with the comfort level for that. But I think that those numbers are still skewed just because of the safety and reporting. Right. Yeah. And then so from that, that's when you transitioned and started thinking you wanted to open more of a like a wellness practice. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, well, I did Palmetto Counseling Associates first. Um, I deployed with um, Nikki Haley's husband, Michael. So we were battle buddies. Um, and he um, asked me a question, like, how can I support your program? And I said, well, well we need a venue. And so through that, I um, saw that there was a counseling center, there was a Christian counseling center, and that's when I got licensed. So the military, that whole time, just my credentials alone without being licensed, um, I operated in that capacity. And then I got licensed after I came back from Afghanistan in 2014. So I was there for... Um, up until 2021. Um, and I just really felt that, you know, when people came in for counseling, it was very heavy, very burdened, and I was able to do very good work. But I also felt like that wasn't all, that people right. saw counseling as a reactionary thing and not really as a wellness, um, as sustainable. Like a preventative Yeah, tool. like a preventative yeah. measure. And so, and with that, because of how the body stores trauma, yoga, that's what everyday wellness has. So launching everyday wellness is more of a holistic um, practice, meaning that we carry the mind, body, and spirit. Mm -hmm. um, so you can t talk about your your trauma. You can do life coaching and just start from walking in the door and, yeah. and give practical tools. But you can also do yoga um, and get massage therapy as a part of your wellness plan. Mm -hmm. And so um, the idea is that when you come in, um, that if you don't know what the person's coming in for, they can be massage therapy or it can be yoga, that you already come in the door feeling lighter yeah. than you previously. Yeah. And that, that makes me curious on if somebody wants to come see you, what does us like the first session look like? Is there some sort of vetting where you kind of funnel them to what you think would be best? Yeah, I, I think it's my philosophy that believe I believe that um, therapy is 60% rapport and 40% theory and skill. If you don't feel safe um, with the person, then you're not going to share. Mm -hmm. And so that first session um, is really spent getting to know each other, 
trying to decide if it's a good fit, understanding why they're coming, what they're looking to get from therapy so the therapist has an opportunity to kind of share with them whether or not the skill set and what they do um, you fits, know, is fitting yeah. for the client. And so we often share with the client that when you come in for the first time, it's not a binding agreement. And that both the therapist and the client get to uh, walk away from that and decide whether or not that's a good fit. That's good. For them. Yeah, I so like you, that. So you've been through, so you went from years of grief counseling, mm -hmm. then to the sexual assault, and now into the wellness world. Yeah. And is it, I, I guess, how would you compare the three experiences? And is there things that you pulled from each of those, or are they different disciplines? I think I pulled all of them here. They, yeah. the, the wellness is, a, is an addition to that. And so I still do a lot of trauma and grief work, yeah. but now those other services are available in one space. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, kind of going back to the holistic care. And so now I do more life coaching as well um, because those clients that I've worked with over the years, we've done a lot of trauma work. Um, and now they're just kind of navigating life situations. And then they may move. So some of my clients that were at USC, maybe now in other states, and life coaching does allow you to kind of go across state lines and you're dealing with more milder um, situations that are not traumatic in nature. Right. Yeah. Was there any challenges when it came to, when you made the decision that you want to open up here in Columbia and kind of start your private practice, was there any challenges that you came across to start the wellness clinic? Yes. I, I think that it's, it was hard for... Um, people to conceptualize the idea of therapy, massage, yoga, all in one, coexisting. Yeah. You know, I wasn't looking for a traditional hallway with therapy offices to the left and right. <laughs> right. I, I wanted more open atmosphere and also a group space where we can come together and share a fellowship. And traditionally, that's just not the counseling culture. It's, right. You know, you come in, no one needs to know I'm here, and then let me scoot out the back. And right. that, that's just not, I've, that was one of the things I really struggled with. I was realizing that that's really not who I am. Yeah. And also the client pool that I attracted, that's also not who they were. Mm -hmm. And so it was just um, really just allowing myself and just to see how God was moving in that way and to trust more. Um, and it's just, it's just yielded good benefits. And it's nice to see my clients transition from one atmosphere to the other yeah. and communicate that they feel a lot more free. Yeah. And so. it seems like you guys are extremely unique. Like I've yeah. never, as you mentioned, I've never heard of all, this all in one sort of approach like that. And I love that. Yeah. Um, is, was there any model that you looked at that looked similar to what you, or was this kind of just. No, it was um, when I, I felt like my husband would describe at 3 a.m. when I kind of woke up and was like, I think I got it. You know, um, I went on because my original name was The Wellness Place. And I was like, I feel like that's what God planted in me. And so I Googled it and I saw that there was a wellness place like in Australia and yeah. um, in one of the places in the United States. But it was more medical providers and they did have massage therapy, um, but it didn't include counselors. Right. And so I was just thinking about how that could work. And um, and when I met the massage therapist and she told me about her certifications in medical massage, I was like, wow, insurance even reimburses for that. And I didn't know that. Right. And so it was definitely faith led, um, but it was fitting mm -hmm. to who I am. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. So, so when it comes to seeing patients, because I always worry about the mental health of the people who have to sit there and listen to people just unload for mm -hmm. hours and hours and hours a day. Yeah. Because even for myself, sometimes I, I know we'll have, we have a mix of different people that come in for chiropractic, but there's mm -hmm. a percentage who are always in crisis, we call it like crisis mode. They can right. always barely walk. They do the absolute minimum. They're always hurting. And 
they have to be in such excruciating mm -hmm. pain to come get help. And then right. there's, and they're kind of the exhausting ones because mm -hmm. it's always like a big, a big ordeal. Right. And then there's the other side who are the people who are healthy. They want to stay healthy. It's mm -hmm. always a easy interaction and right. they're so um, proactive, I guess, in dealing mm -hmm. with their health. So I'm sure you see that side of it too. Right. So if you have a whole bunch, and I'm, I'm thinking more back to when you were doing sexual assault mm -hmm. and grief counseling, which are pretty heavy, mm -hmm. what were the things that you did? Or that say you had someone who just graduated, they're a counselor, they want to be a counselor, a licensed therapist. What are you telling them to do for themselves to stay healthy? Yeah, well, first, I, I'm very transparent that I also see a therapist, you know, um, I, you know, again, it's a lot to carry on your own. And in COVID, you know, typically when you're a therapist and any provider, well, specifically therapy, I'll speak from that. If you're navigating a hardship, like say I'm going through a divorce, then I, I wouldn't see that population, right? Or if I'm navigating something, then I can choose just not to see that population because it's very stimulating for me. Yeah. But in COVID, well, you know, we're all, right. <laughs> we're all stuck in it together. I can't talk you out of this. Mm -hmm. And so that's been quite a challenge. And so I've been transparent and kind of seeking that help. But also I think that um, that kind of eclectic approach, you definitely have to manage a caseload. I definitely found purpose and kind of meeting people that actually need those skills and it gives you purpose and it, it drives kind of the work that you do, but kind of balancing that with someone that's coming in for life coaching helps offset that. And so you, you get to kind of breathe, but some helpful tips that I think is um, I use the acronym pause, assess, discern, you know, we can't do anything uh, rationally when we're emotionally charged, right? Yeah. Whether that is communicating effectively with someone, your spouse or you're addressing your children or um, dealing with something that is emotionally stimulating. While we're emotionally charged, more times than not, if we respond immediately, it's irrational. And if you pause, you get to discern whether or not I'm upset because of what this showed up in me, which has an origin in the past. Because if it has origin in the past, then what's in front of me has no power, right? But you can't do that without pausing. So assessing and evaluating like your body response. Some people are not able to kind of think through the logic of that. But if I could start learning and pay attention to my body, then I use that as a warning sign. And then the last one is just discern. How do I move forward? But I can't discern unless I do the first two. And so that's one helpful tip. The other one is um, exercise. I mean, I do a lot of trauma work with EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing which the working memory is a part of that and being able to put together some fragmented parts that may have been stored. But exercise also helps with the working memory. And so, you know, try not to emphasize exercise as a part of just like being socially accepted because that's a part of the younger population and older. Um, but improving memory is very beneficial. But the other part of that is just learning how to communicate assertively by acknowledging your feelings. Spend less time about um, expressing how you think the other person treated you, but explaining the behavior and then describing how that behavior made you feel mm -hmm. is very effective. So those are the three tips that I would offer. Can, and can you simplify for the listeners the EMDR, maybe tell us a, a case or a scenario, what, how, what it is, how you utilize that, and, and maybe the, a story that, that uh, you use that tool that helps somebody? Sure. So, um, um, EMDR is, um, it uses bilateral stimulation and, and what that does is replicate REM sleep, accessing the left and right side of the brain. And that's basically someone following my fingers from left to right, or I have these vibrating tap, um, tappers that would vibrate and they would close your eyes. You would close your eyes and just kind of visualize the memory. Um, what that does is allow someone, um, when you're 
with the bilateral stimulation, it allows your memories to become more vivid and accessible. And so if you've had fragmented parts that you just can't like figure out, like, why do I get so upset that I can't shake? Or if I had a traumatic accident, but every time I pass that bridge, I'm emotionally triggered. EMDR is very effective because it allows you to process it and then store those things kind of in a more adaptive way. It's harder to explain and to demonstrate. Um, but I utilize that. Um, I'll give one scenario um, or two. I've had um, one woman that, for 15 years, she has not been able to drive on the interstate. You know, she's tried different things. She's tried cognitive behavioral therapy. She's tried a number of things. But just that psychosomatic response and the way that her body responded, she just couldn't shake. Yeah. So she didn't uh, really believe in EMDR, and we did try it. And after six sessions, she's able to just drive past that bridge with no stimulation at all. And her husband had to come in and was like, I need to figure out what was this. It's not hypnosis because you're not unconscious. You're very much conscious, but we're right. targeting a past memory. And so keeping with the bilateral stimulation, um, it does reduce. That's the desensitization. That's the D in EMDR. It desensitizes. So if you think of someone that is scared of heights, you keep taking them up and you're letting them fall. And over time, they desensitize. We're doing the same thing with memory. And so it's very effective. And one other example is a kid. I had a kid that was 11 years old, had a lot of stomach issues, a lot of nausea. His mom thought that he was trying to um, escape school and he went to a, a doctor and they evaluated his intestines and a lot of things and just would not resolve his nausea. Um, once we began EMDR with him, what we realized is that was a memory that he had just not recalled that he was bullied in the hallway at school. So the thought of going to school brought up, brought up this illness that was unexplained. Mm -hmm. And now he's able to do that very effectively. He's now in high school in 10th yeah. grade. And so um, I do enjoy that work. But traditionally, EMDR has been reserved for veterans for over 30 years until people realize yeah. that not only veterans struggle with PTSD of some sort. Right. And so now it's kind of more applied to the general population. How many um, therapists in in the city of Columbia, let's say, do techniques like this that you're aware of? Um, EMDR is becoming more popular, but everyone's not comfortable with right. it. So I think you will find that more people are getting trained in it, but not a lot of people are using right. it as a, a primary practice. Yeah, because it's very interesting. I've heard mm -hmm. of there's a doctor in the chiropractic world that was working with kids with ADHD and mm -hmm. autism and anybody on the spectrum. And a lot of his work was very similar to this, but I've never I've never heard of EMDR mm -hmm. until we were talking about it earlier, which was connecting the right and left brain on mm -hmm. how the synapse between those two, mm -hmm. he felt that there was a disconnection. Mm -hmm. And then the, the kids would err more on one side and it kept becoming more and more dominant. Right. And just by doing these these bilateral things with vibration and eyes and mm -hmm. um, it, it started connecting that. And then right. the symptoms of these kids on spectrum would just decrease. Right. And it's really cool stuff. Oh yeah. I think it's pretty fascinating. And it's just amazing that, I mean, and that's what's great about interviewing you is, is that these are tools that people just aren't familiar with or hear about mm -hmm. ever, I don't think. And the one thing that I will offer about EMDR is because there are some people that are very nervous about talking through their story, traditional mm -hmm. talk therapy. Mm -hmm. EMDR does expedite the therapy process. And so I do see people that may have a traditional therapist that they talk to. Um, they speak with them on a regular basis. Their condition has determined that they've gotten stuff. Like I just, they just can't shake this area and I would do EMDR for them and then refer back. And so it's a method um, that can expedite and also it reduces the talking because, you know, when we are explaining our trauma or our events, we're describing them as we understand them. 
when you do an EMDR, the brain tells the story. And so you simply ask, what do you notice? What showed up for you? It's like object, you have some objective measure. Yeah, yeah that's nice. Things become more vivid. Emotions show up in your body. Your body starts doing things. that, And, and you begin to put those fragmented parts together. Wow. And then now that you understand that better, You've now stored that memory in a different way that's more adaptive, and now your brain has that to hold on to. So when you become triggered, you're not as emotionally charged as you may have been before. So when it comes to kids, then I want to go back to the kid who had the psychosomatic mm -hmm. issues with his digestion. If you were in charge of, let's say, safety in a school from either physical trauma, sexual trauma, emotional trauma, whatever you're seeing with children, mm -hmm. is there anything that you would implement or that as parents we should be looking at to prevent it? Because I think awareness is a component of it, but then I also think you probably see a lot of scenarios where the recurring theme keeps happening over and over again, or maybe not. Well, I think that um, you know children and teenagers are some of the most comfortable complicated um, species, as I call them, because what they're presenting is not always a direct correlation to what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to pay attention to their symptoms, it's not always going to lead you back to the path of the area that they're struggling with. Mm -hmm. I would encourage parents to just pay attention to um, behavior that's not consistent to who they are, right? If your child traditionally loves being in the sun and enjoying, but now they're wearing hoodies, even though you don't see anything, there's something distinctly different mm -hmm. there. And so just because you notice those changes, I would then start asking more questions. One of the questions that I often ask is, check your children's arms, the back of their thighs, um, because cutting is just a method that is very popular mm -hmm. and also as a means of like, um, their thoughts are not as intrusive as they want to exit, but they feel numb. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, oftentimes when you check for those things, sometimes it leads you to a path of like, wow, I missed that. And so kids, you want to look for behaviors that are not kind of natural to, you know, their default way of thinking and, and behaving. Where does cutting come from? I, you know, I, I'm just thinking back to like, I, re I do recall when like kids and when I was in school would wear like long sleeve shirts and then I'd start, I just, where does that thought come into mind where it's like, I, that is a, I guess a relief or a way that they... Yeah, it normally comes from uh, not being able to articulate emotions, um, not really understanding like what you're feeling. Yeah. You're just overwhelmed and I need a release, right? So if I, I don't have the words to kind of explain to my mom like what's happening with me, nor do I think they're going to understand or there's not an emotional safe environment, then cutting or self-harming in some way. Some kids like may bam their head against the wall. It's, it's destructive, but it causes an emotion. It causes something. And anger typically yields a powerful result. You feel more in control versus something like talking about your feelings. And so, and also it's been, um, what's the word I'm looking for when things become popular in the media? Um, you know, 13 Reasons Why didn't really help. Uh, right. I don't know if you ever heard of that movie, but it didn't help. It, it kind of glorified, I believe, in a lot of ways, yeah. cutting. And yeah. they built two series off of it, and it was very popular. And basically wow. the young lady, um, she encountered a lot of bullying, but there was this letter where she placed a lot of blame for the behavior that she did. And I, and I think that it gave people reason to kind of do more of that also. And so I, there's a lot of theories on that. I won't spend a lot of time on that, mm -hmm. but I will say that it's, for one, popular, people learning more at an early age. But two, it either provides a way of feeling or for some, it, it numbs them um, and they just want to check out and they don't have the courage to, to make it permanent. Is it more prevalent in a certain age or demographic 
Like I, I would imagine teen. I when I think of it, I picture like a teenage female. I would say middle school. Middle school. Yeah. From what I see, middle school. Wow. It's hard, and you know the one thing I want to encourage that's cutting, self harming. If you see that, it's not an act of of suicide. You know, oftentimes parents get very alarmed. It's just a means of expression. Yeah, sure, you should be alarmed. But also, it's a means of expression, and you have to really work to kind of develop healthy coping strategies. So I encourage parents to to be mindful, if you ever encounter that, to just respond in a way that if they said, like, I'm very sad, what would you offer to them? You offer compassion, support, and love versus um, being very restrictive, of course, with, with safety moder- moderation. So. Mm-hmm. And what about anorexia, bulimia, eating, in the eating disorder world? I think they're often linked together, but I don't know. Are they, they similar are. emotions just coming out a different way? Yeah, and also learned um, behaviors over the years and also, you know, perception if you have body image or if you, you know, sometimes even as parents, we make these mistakes very early on. We plant seeds very early on that, you know, maybe you shouldn't eat that honey. You know, you're not. We don't. Our intent and motive is pure, um, but the way a child conceptualizes something like that, um, you know, can cause those negative cognitions this for a long time. And so um, it shows up in a lot of work. Um, I don't specialize in that, but it does show up. And a lot of my clients have dual diagnosis of um, anorexia, bulimia. Really? Mm-hmm. So over the years, because you started pre-social media, mm-hmm. have you noticed, was there a big spike when social media started becoming a thing and everybody now having more access to people's highlight reels on social media and comparing their like worst moments to their friends' best moments. Was there a big transition there where you found that like social media has had a crazy impact on mental health? Uh, I think it has. I mean, I still see it now with my young adults. I mean, last year I had hospitalized two um, teenagers, um, but when they were hospitalized and even coming out, removing themselves from Snapchat, improve their overall well-being right and so even throughout the treatment plan we may incorporate that like hey let's just go two to three weeks without that and see and we see a drastic like a drastic difference between the two so so i do believe that social media does paint a picture um that the grass is always greener and there are other things that you're missing out on things and and it does in turn kind of make people yeah. feel more depressed and to that like on the same note do you feel and, and I guess this has become more of a thing in the last couple years of how the news or the social platform that you follow, it keeps this, it keeps like creating more divisiveness in our country oh, and yeah. just in the pro like it's, it's, they're targeting things that you may be, mm-hmm. that may be harmful for you and they're giving you more ads or they're feeding more to that. Yeah. And that, that's been a, like a scary thing just over the years. And like, how do we break that? And what should we do outside of like, stop, you know, watching that stuff or. Yeah. Well, and I also think that, you know, I think we have so many different outlets to media. I think reducing it, not eliminating it because it's an area of curiosity, mm-hmm. but you know, like for my husband and I, he doesn't get to watch the news nor is he on social media. So when he comes home, he watches the news. When I see it all day and I'm attached to social media, I'm trying to be mindful to not consume that. And I think right. reducing, reducing the amount of outlets that you have. But also, when you, there's a lot of research that even shows um, with the Boston Marathon. The people that witnessed it kind of carried more vicarious trauma than the people that were actually there. 
just because of how much media consumption that they consumed. You're you saying know? witness it on TV, on TV versus the actual that, people. That were actually wow. there. And yeah. so it just, because hearing it all day, hearing the different stories from the, stories from the witnesses um, became more traumatic in nature and people yeah. were seeing that experience worldwide. Is that like a programming that goes on? Like I, we're somewhat familiar with like neuro-linguistic programming and some of the, the techniques and things like Tony Robbins would use mm-hmm. to kind of help people. Um, it, that's what it feels like. It's almost like negatively programming people to go into autopilot and somewhat like the like going to school feeling nauseous with that kid. Mm-hmm. It's almost like seeing whatever right. the American flag and now automatically running a program that has been not, maybe not even your program, but because you've seen it so much oh, yeah. and connected things to it. Well, you know, we call it associations, you know, your brain begins to make those associations just depending on your experience and the consumption. Yeah. And so when you see those, your brain automatically makes that association because it's the last thing that was stored. Right. And so even in therapy, we're constantly reframing and challenging thoughts that, um, and, and trying to create a distinction between what's true and what now I have believed to be true just by recent experiences um, to help respond in a very rational way. And I almost think that's an obstacle in healthcare Mm -hmm. um, that's been programmed for a hundred years on we're in the chiropractic and now you're kind of in the more holistic world. Mm -hmm. And I would say holistic is becoming more popular or be more, but prior to that, there were just so many negative attacks and the quacks and the, all this snake mm-hmm. oil. And you st- it still kind of mm-hmm. comes up that it's a program that I, half the time these people, they don't truly believe that. Mm-hmm. It was like my grandma used to say that. Right. And so now I've never seen a chiropractor because of mm-hmm. that. And then it's like they come in and it's like, wow, I've waited 40 years and I should have been seeing you guys you know, long ago. Oh, yeah. yeah. We definitely see that. Even, you know, um, I think even culturally, I'll acknowledge this, that African-American men traditionally are kind of the last culture to come around to therapy. Um, and so, you know, I tend to be uh, more diligent with the population with creating safety, you know, especially being a woman. And, um, but I've noticed that the more um they're able to kind of expose themselves to the therapy process, they're more free. I mean, you see a difference in the clothes they begin to wear, how free and how vocal they become. And then again, being able to see how some experiences from young adult has kind of shaped every aspect of your life. And you reframe that and you're able to see like the why, because the beauty in that is that clients that develop their own um, reframing and their own thought processes and own adaptive thinking, that's where transformation happens. Mm-hmm. It's not when a therapist comes up with the idea. Yeah. And so I, I love the aspect of that. And that is probably the most beautiful aspect of my job. Is it hard to get people, once they're better, is it hard to kind of get rid of them? Yes. Like I could see them being attached to you and being it's saying, com- I'm not going anywhere. I'm coming back to you it's no matter how I And I tell you, um, I, I think different therapists have different styles. And I've kind of recognized my style I'm, I'm of therapy I have repeat clients, you know, and I've had repeat clients for a long time. It's not the way that I was taught. I have a conflicts with my belief system now because if ther- therapy is a part of wellness, then wellness is sustainability, right? I come to the chiropractor right, every other right, Friday. Right. That was once I've had chronic back pain for years and I used to get reactive treatment and get shots, right? But then I would always find myself bad. And so if wellness and routine care, in my opinion, keeps you well, then to me, there's therapeutic value there. Now, I do believe that when clients become very dependent upon me and I'm doing more work than them, 
then it's time for them to kind of go off into the world to be able to employ the skills that they've learned and then know that I'm always here. You can always come back. So. And is there an age that you generally would recommend a wellness therapy approach? Because I think even back to when we were getting married, and this is 12 or 13 years ago, we were talking about going to pre-marriage counseling, and it was incredible, but there was almost this freak out, like, what's wrong? If you're going to counseling or therapy, why? what's the problem? Why are you getting married? And we were saying, no, everything's great. Right. We just want to go have someone show us our blind spots, make sure that we're getting set up properly. Right. And then I think to my daughters, what age would they be having? And it may not be therapy, maybe life coaching or whatever that approach is where they would need a safe place to go talk. I often tell people, uh, try it one time, even with your kids. I tell you, Janelle, who's in our practice, she's like a kid magnet. Yeah. You know, even my friends that have come on the weekends and they go into her office, they get nervous. Like, oh gosh, she's in a telling a life story, you know? <laughs> but you get to know, once your kid gets outside their environment, you really begin to know, like, is there other work to be done? You know, once they start drawing things and the therapist could ask questions what that is, you get more content. Yeah. But if your child goes in, you know, either they're not ready or there's no progress, or there's nothing to give back, then I think that's where you know, but it's hard for parents in our way of perceiving things to know whether or not our child is really going through something internally because they can't always put words or good language to their feelings. And so I think as early as elementary school and play therapy, even if if it's just a Mm check-in once a year, just to see where they are, you'll get good content. And you guys do play therapy with kids? Is that what Janelle Janelle primarily does? Nice. Well, she does. So Janelle has over... um, 17 years and as a licensed school counselor nice. and so she's uh picked up additional licensure um to kind of uh, open her scope of and because her husband is in uh, ministry she's always had to do kind of counseling generally and so um her additional scope has been more family and adults but her primary skill set has been in the past working with children awesome. and teenagers so that, and how do you how do you find a therapist it because and here's here's the backstory of it i would have people who would come to me and they would say something that i would i would say that's not my realm but i want to send you to someone who is and they would say well how do i find someone who suits me or how do i find the right one mm-hmm. and i had no idea i think so i get a lot of my referrals from psychology today people get to read your profiles and connect with you you know sure. if you want someone more kind of serious you know and um kind of brief right you wouldn't choose me my personality doesn't kind of reflect that um if you need more warmth or sometimes if people are in need of like something you know, they want to feel more wise you know they'll seek an older therapist but looking at their skill set and their profile to see how they're delivering if they're primarily talking about like theory and um, that may be more up your alley but if I'm kind of telling you that I'm a gardener I'm a vet you know I specialize in trauma but I believe in creating an environment of safety then you kind of got an idea that maybe some traditional conversation in that too and I think reading the profiles give you a good aspect of like what the therapy's prior um, what the therapist priorities are and then they also list your skill set psychology psychologyaday.com cool yeah nice now, so you're married. Yeah. Um, do you ever find yourself when you're talking with Nate <laughs> that you go into clinician mode? <laughs> yes. Uh, more often than not, I've gotten better. Try my stepdaughter. She would probably like, yes. So, so I'll give you one example. She, uh, in middle school, she wasn't communicating it. And for the record, I've been 
raising my stepdaughter and she was eight as a full-time mom so because my husband's a full-time dad but she wasn't communicating in middle school or the weird you know and they start talking they don't want to talk to you so she's always um um, had a weapon because she's a daddy's girl and they she had a 22 rifle forever but I went in there and like collected the bullets, you know, and you know, just for a safety measure. She was like, oh my God, like, why do we have to go there? And I'm like, just as a safety measure. But communication, my husband's an introvert, you know, so I've always talked to him about communicating. And then also for me, just kind of recognize we're always evaluating. You know, I'm always trying to sit down and let's evaluate the problem. It's not working. And so I therapize and try not to do that at home as, <laughs> as much That's as funny. I used to. Because that's what I was thinking as well. Like you probably hear stories, even in general, that you might see on TV or you're watching a movie and you see how things are unfolding. Do you do you find yourself like falling back into like, all right, here's how I would handle this or counsel this person to get through it? Yeah. Well, like, does it ever ever shut off? In other words, yeah. Now it does. Okay. Um, I think in the beginning, you know, again, because my my route to this path is non traditional. Um, you know, I've just wanted to therapize everything. I just right. want to really understand. But now I just, I don't want to, you know, I just, I want to just be human. And I don't even want my friends to think that I'm evaluating them. Like, I just want to be flawed too, right. in my own way. And so I think, you know, as time goes on, you know, there's less of that. And I kind of want to go down a route of like, so some of the common, I, I think it is the most common medication uh, in America, or I think maybe in the world, is an antidepressant. Hmm. Is that, I don't know if that statistics, it's up there, yeah. if not. A mm-hmm. statin, I think, is up mm-hmm. there. Blood pressure pills are up there. Um, but that being said, what uh, when it comes to depression, let's just start with depression. I was always told, it, the easiest way that it was explained to me was that your current reality doesn't match hmm. what you want it to be. And that yeah. gap is depression. So every day you wake up, and, you know, if I'm thinking in my mind, I'm supposed to be a pro basketball player, but mm-hmm. I'm walking into a chiropractic office to mm-hmm. talk to patients that creates this very large gap of like, I'm not what I think I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And now uh, every day I'm living in this depression. Yeah. What so that in it, in it in it of itself, like how do you when you meet with somebody how do you define that they actually have like a clinical diagnosis of depression? Mm-hmm. And then what sort of techniques do you, do you utilize to possibly, I mean, try to avoid medication completely? Yeah. So I think that I definitely, uh, because I, I do more trauma focused work, I'm always floating back and it's a float back technique. And so I may not exactly um, hone in on the events that you're presenting, but I ask you to follow the emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And so say, for instance, you're like, like I feel like just like, I feel like not good enough. I would simply ask you, now tell me all the times that you can recall that you have not felt good enough. Man, the content that you get, because people don't follow symptoms. Right. They follow events. Yeah. A breakup made me feel this way. No, but what showed up right. there? Maybe not feeling good enough, not feeling heard. And if I chilled that back, then what shows up for me? And so I, those are the, the negative cognitions. If you're able to identify those, process those, and go back and resolve those, I believe you get a better idea of like how people are truly able to walk in freedom. Gotcha. You know, And then yeah. after that, if there's a roadblock, I typically, Dr. Bjork is very good with doing genetic testing. Um, and so sometimes we can see if there's just like a, um, your predisposition, if you have some you know, if you're resistant to SSRIs or anything like that, to, that that's helpful for a psychiatrist to see. But typically floating back and trying to reframe, understand things better, 
conceptualize things that was stored as an eight-year-old, seven-year-old, mm-hmm. and now pulling that out with my logical mind now, if I store that differently and I have a new walk and I implement that, how does that free me up now to kind of operate right. Right. with true authenticity? Right. Because I oh I often wondered, do you, it seems like the that medication is very over prescribed mm-hmm. and people aren't diving down to find the roots and find the real reason. Yeah, well, and they get stuck on the medications, right? They do, but the vulnerability. I mean, I think Renee Brown does a good job. Vulnerability is um, one of those emotions that people don't want to experience, mm-hmm. and in order to kind of truly navigate and dive deep. There's a possibility of rejection, failure that can show up that people just don't want to experience. Right, right. And so I think that, you know, even through my therapy, we embrace vulnerability. We try to. We try to normalize it and say, like, hey, like, even if I was an artist or if I wanted to be an actor, I cannot get on the other side unless I go through that window of being faced with rejection, being faced with, like, being saying you're not good enough right. to be able to achieve the success. And so getting people increasing that window of tolerance of that negative emotion, um, I think, kind of um, enables the gateway for healing but a lot of people aren't ready for that and sometimes like today I had a client that's no longer on any medication her grief was so difficult that I couldn't get her to implement any skills and so her uh, general anxiety was just out of the world out of this world so now that she has done the medication and now been able to implement the skills and seen the results her coming off of the medication now it feels freeing to her. Yeah. But we just couldn't get her to the space to implement the skills. So I think having a temporary approach sometimes kind of enables people to do the thing that they need to I do. I like that. I mean, it makes sense to have an end. There should be an end goal. Because mm-hmm. it seems like with at least patients that we meet, it's like, wait, you start on this medication and there isn't a strategy to come off of it. Mm-hmm. And that scares the heck out of me when you think of the amount of uh, chemicals that the, that body has had to process for years with right. no end Goal. Yeah. Um, and my pool of, you know, even the pool of um, psychiatric providers that I work with, um, I work with the ones that require therapy to be a part of a treatment plan. Cool. Um, and so we have this common idea that, you know, you got to do the work, but also you can't do one without the other. Right. And so. Nice. Wow. So we have a couple more minutes. I just wanted you to give us kind of your fun things that you do. What do you like? Tell us about kind of who you are and then where can people find you if they want to contact you? What's your preferred method? Yeah. Well, I love connecting with friends. Um, one of my uh, favorite pastimes, I love to salsa dance. It's my favorite thing to salsa. do. Salsa. Really? Yes. I've done that for Does years. Nate dance? No. And so the interesting <laughs> the interesting thing is that Nathan would take me to Salsa Cabana right here near Forest Drive. And he would just sit at the bar and you know, they, no would, they would come ask him permission to dance. And he was just like, yes, please, you know. <laughs> and so we've kind of had that working relationship. But obviously COVID put a damper in that and right. that place is closed. But that is my favorite thing to do. Cool. Um, but I do like spending time with friends, um, connecting um, with people. Um, the other thing I like to do, I mean, I do like This Is Us is my favorite show. It just kind of gets all of my emotions going. Um but everyone can find us at Everyday Wellness SC on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. And um, I am a young underscore therapist um, on Instagram as well. And um, I mean, we look forward to just improving the community, giving, promoting the idea of wellness on a different aspect of, uh, of the spectrum. Um, yeah. And you were saying if 
if uh, people need to, your office is located right across the street from <laughs> Wet Willie's. Wet Willie's and Jimmy John's. Yeah, 801 Gervais, Suite 201. That's where we are. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate you. I hope that um, everybody learned a lot from it. I know this was super helpful for us, too. So um, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being on. We're here for the health of it. For the health of it.